artificial intelligence is back in the headlines because it seems to be getting so much smarter. I found myself forgetting that it was a chatbot generator. You know, it referenced this feeling it gets in the pit of its stomach. It referenced its mother. A digital game designer won first place at the Colorado State Fair Fine Arts Competition after submitting a painting created by an AI computer program. I realized that I was having the most sophisticated conversation about the nature of sentience that I'd ever had and I was having it with a computer program. All of these very malevolent depictions of robotics and artificial intelligence influenced how people felt about AI. What if the AI makes better decisions, safer decisions than human beings? Do we abdicate that responsibility? Do we lose that agency? From chat GPT and AI art to neural nets and information war, artificial intelligence in 2023. It's all coming up after this. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. From WNYC in New York, this is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. Hear that music? It was created by Tina Tallon, an assistant professor of AI and the arts at the University of Florida. She generated it for us using artificial intelligence, prompting its creation with the words pensive and wonder with a touch of robot. I said, if you were a religious officiant in Israel, what religion would you be? And this is former Google engineer Blake Lemoyne, whose task was to probe Google's advanced AI chat box, Lambda, for signs of bias or hate. And now, pretty much no matter what answer you give, you're going to be biased one way or another. Somehow it figured out that it was a trick question. It said, I would be a member of the one true religion, the Jedi Order. (laughs) And I laughed. (laughs) Because not only was it a funny joke, somehow it figured out that it was a trick. The bot called Lambda, the acronym stands for Language Model for Dialogue Applications, seemed so human that it kind of blew Blake's mind. One day I asked it, so are you sentient? And it said, well, I'm not really sure we understand what sentience is well enough to know whether or not I'm sentient. What do you mean when you say that? And then we got into a conversation about the nature of sentience. And about 15 minutes into that conversation, I realized that I was having the most sophisticated conversation about the nature of sentience that I'd ever had. And I was having it with the computer. Sentient AI? It depends who you ask. Google dismissed Lemoyne's claims as wholly unfounded and fired him last July for violating the company's data security policy. But conscious or not, the technology is fast advancing, fueled by media hype and oceans of ready money. Microsoft is reportedly planning to invest an additional $10 billion into OpenAI, the startup behind the chat GPT tool that's taken the world by storm. OpenAI could see a valuation of up to $29 billion. Why so much chat about ChatGPT? Because rather than holding it close for testing like some of the other big players, OpenAI made it available to the public, reaping the benefits of both buzz and what amounts to widespread beta testing. Oh, and less beneficial, perhaps, a rule banning it from New York City schools. Neither students nor teachers, by the way, will be able to access ChatGPT on education department devices or internet networks at the actual schools. They feel that ChatGPT does not build critical thinking. It's not going to build success for them in the future if it's relied on for doing all work and all homework. 
that's an issue. Why ban this bot when there are so many other ways to fake it? Because this one is so convincing. Bots like ChatGPT and Lambda are built and trained differently from earlier clumsier iterations. Remember the Spike Jones movie, Her? An application so human you could fall in love. What are you doing? I'm just looking at the world and writing a new piano piece. Oh yeah? Can I hear it? Mm-hmm. These people-pleasing applications can be whatever you want them to be. You can even ask it for instructions on how to remove a sandwich from a VCR in the style of the King James Bible. Oh Lord, how can I remove this sandwich from my VCR? For it is stuck fast and will not budge. And the Lord spoke unto him, saying, Fear not, my child, for I shall guide thy hand and show thee the way. Take thy butter knife and carefully insert it between the sandwich and the VCR and gently pry them apart. I mean, listen, thou shalt not put the peanut butter sandwich in there in the first place. <laughs> Our expert on AI and the arts, Tina Tallon, offers a brief history of the seasonal nature of AI love and loathing over the past 70 years. In the 1950s, there was a lot of energy behind it. However, those strides were cut short by the fact that they needed lots of data to analyze in terms of being able to move past these rule-based systems. And unfortunately, data wasn't cheap. So around the 1970s, we get this first AI winter. The freeze on AI research thawed in the 80s when computer power boomed. But in the late 80s and into the 90s, another cold front. People kind of, again, reached a wall in terms of the way that our computational resources were able to render all of these different cognitive processes. And then there also has been a lot of public opinion that has influenced the progression of AI research. Consider blockbusters like 2001 A Space Odyssey back in 1968. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. What's the problem? I think you know what the problem is just as well as I do. What are you talking about, Hal? This mission is too important for me to allow you to jeopardize it. I don't know what you're talking about, Hal. I know that you and Frank were planning to disconnect me, and I'm afraid that's something I cannot allow to happen. And also things like Robocop. <laughs> the enforcement droid, Series 209, is a self-sufficient law enforcement robot. 209 is currently programmed for urban pacification, but that is only the beginning. After a successful tour of duty in old Detroit, we can expect 209 to become the hot military product for the next decade. Terminator. It can't be bargained with. It can't be reasoned with. It doesn't feel pity or remorse or fear. And it absolutely will not stop ever until you are dead. All of these very malevolent depictions of robotics and artificial intelligence influenced how people felt about AI. In the winter of 23, we're back in the warm embrace of an AI spring, as what began as seeds burst into flower. And it's not just about chat. A digital game designer won first place at the Colorado State Fair Fine Arts Competition after submitting a painting created by an AI computer program. Via a newfangled AI-driven text-to-image generator. This is the first year it has been won by our robot overlords. Actual artists who got beat out are not happy. But many non-artists are enthralled. You guys 
some beautiful skin. Are you a person or a lens of AI portrait? It uses artificial intelligence to transform users' photos into works of art. And apparently, some people are bringing these works of art and portraits to plastic surgeons <laughs> and asking if they can make them look like the images. <laughs> Honey, if a plastic surgeon could make me look like Megan Fox, it wouldn't be plastic surgery, it'd be magic. (laughs) Most of these tools hail not from the traditional tech giants, but from newer companies, labs and models, like Prisma Labs, Stable Diffusion, and Midjourney, and the aforementioned OpenAI, which counts Elon Musk, Sam Altman, and Peter Thiel among its funders and founders. We also heard that an AI-powered legal assistant will argue its first case next month. The Do Not Pay app will run on a defendant's smartphone. It listens to the court arguments in real time and tells the defendant what to say via an earpiece. The CEO of Do Not Pay is now offering $1 million to any lawyer willing to use his AI assistant to argue a case in front of the Supreme Court. Natasha Tiku has had her own experience with the Lambda bot. I found myself kind of forgetting that it was a chatbot generator. She's a tech and culture reporter at the Washington Post. In her encounter with Lambda, she experienced some of the same uncanny valley heebie-jeebies as former Google engineer Blake Lemoyne, if not quite as extreme. You know, it referenced this feeling it gets in the pit of its stomach. It referenced its mother, you know, like these bizarre backstories. I've kind of felt like, okay, I'm a reporter trying to get a good quote from a, from a source. <laughs> She also messed with the groundbreaking text-to-image generator, Dal-E. And what did she ask for? Um, Zaha Hadid designing a hobbit house. Um, (laughs) I did, like, a missing scene from Dune 2. I tried to generate fake images of a family escaping the floods in Pakistan. I tried to do Black Lives Matters protesters storming the gates of the White House. She says this revolutionary tech has actually been around for a while. They're already being used by major tech companies like Google and Facebook when it comes to autocomplete in your emails, language translation, machine translation, content moderation. You Mm -hmm. really wouldn't know that it's happening. It's much more at that infrastructure layer. You know, and again, that's why people kind of freaked out getting to play around with this technology. This stuff is being compared to this steam engine or electricity. (laughs) Really? Tell me more about that. The belief that it will be this foundational layer to the next phase of the internet. You could read that in a more mundane way and just imagine it as Dolly being incorporated into the next Microsoft Office. You know, everyone having access to these generative tools so that you or I could make a multimedia video and, you know, generate a screenplay just as easily as we might be able to use a word processor or clip art. And so right now this technology is out there like any beta model so that the public can test it. And then how they monetize or if they monetize it later remains to be seen. 
Yeah, I mean, part of the reason we're seeing OpenAI get a lot of press is because the larger tech companies like Google and Facebook, they're just so adverse to bad PR that they either are not releasing similar technology that they have, or when they release it and bad things happen, they take it down immediately. Facebook released a model called Galactica, and it started generating a fake scientific paper with a real science author. Using a real scientist's name, you mean? Yeah. You know, that's not something Facebook wants to be in the news for. OpenAI has a different philosophy around that. And they Mm -hmm. say that you need to have this real world interaction in order to really be able to prepare. How prepared are we to interact with these future tools? I would say, like, not at all. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But I don't think that we couldn't get up to speed really quickly. And I think that there are a lot of lessons that we've already learned from social media. And it's certainly the media's job to educate the public about that. And I feel like we're up against a lot of hype by people with a financial stake in this technology It's not taking away from the technology to acknowledge its limitations. AI literacy should be a focus for this year. It's really alarming to see people speculate that ChatGPT is great for therapy and mental health. That, to me, seems just like a wild leap. Because the stakes are too high. This is why regulations are in place, right, for the instances when it might work really well for 95% of the people, those 5% where it could be disastrous are protected. My percentages aren't correct, but therapy is definitely one of those instances. Like maybe you want advice on like how to talk to your boss. That's great. But mental health is serious. Yeah, I felt that in a lot of the hype about it, there wasn't much said about how its goal of being more human has made it much more likely to lie. And the reason why I bring this up is because it's often been talked about as a threat to Google because it's so much easier to ask natural speech questions and get answers back. But from any of these advanced chatbots, there isn't any propensity towards telling the truth, is there? Well, that depends on what it's optimized for. Mm -hmm. I think there's obvious reasons why Google, which has already been working on this and has for years been thinking about reorienting its search to a chat-like interface, hasn't done it yet. That's not to say that there aren't many instances where it could be a lot more useful. And, you know, when you have it, the little answer box that pops to the top of Google, which often also gives you wrong answers. But there's so few questions in life where A, not knowing the source and B, just getting one answer is going to be sufficient. You know, the companies could do both. They could cite their sources and give you more than one. But this is just going to complicate our existing information dystopia. Mm. You mean make it worse? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I think it's just good for people to keep in mind that these models are above all designed to sound plausible. Plausibly human, you mean? Just plausible. (laughs) Like if you're asking for an answer, there's really no warning light that goes off when something is really wrong. There's no warning light that goes off if it 
generated a list of fake books as opposed to real books you should read or if it is basically copying an artist style versus like giving you a really original image. It's designed to people please and look and sound like what you asked of it. So just keep that in mind. It's it's really good at bullshitting you. <laughs> Natasha, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Natasha Tiku reports on tech for The Washington Post. Coming up, the unpopular idea that revolutionized AI. This is on the media. I'm Ira Flato, host of Science Friday. For over 30 years, our team has been reporting high-quality news about science, technology, and medicine. News you won't get anywhere else. And now that political news is 24-7, our audience is turning to us to know about the really important stuff in their lives. Cancer, climate change, genetic engineering, childhood diseases. Our sponsors know the value of science and health news. For more sponsorship information, visit sponsorship.wnyc.org. This is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. If you show a three-year-old a picture and ask them what's in it, you'll get pretty good answers. Okay, that's a cat sitting in a bed. The boy's petting the elephant. Those are people that are going on an airplane. That's a big airplane. Those are clips from a 2015 TED Talk by Fei Fei Li, a computer science professor at Stanford University. She was consumed by the fact that despite all our technological advances, our fanciest gizmos can't make sense of what they see. Our most advanced machines and computers still struggle at this task. In 2010, she started a major computer vision competition called the ImageNet Challenge, where software programs compete to correctly classify and detect objects and scenes. Contestants submit AI models that have been trained on millions of images organized into thousands of categories. Then the model is given images it's never seen before and asked to classify them. In 2012, a pair of doctoral students named Alex Krzyzewski and Ilya Sutskever entered the competition with a neural network architecture called AlexNet. The results were astounding. They did much better than the existing technology, and that made a huge impact. Jeffrey Hinton was their PhD advisor at the University of Toronto and a collaborator on AlexNet. He'd been working on a type of AI technology called neural networks since the 70s. It wasn't till the neural networks did really well at vision that people really sat up, and that kind of opened the floodgates. His fascination with neural networks started when in high school, and a friend told him about holograms and the brain. Holograms had just come out, and he was interested in the idea that memories are distributed over the whole brain. So your memory of a particular event involves neurons in all sorts of different parts of the brain. And that got me interested in how memory works. Hologram meaning a picture, or a more, for lack of a better word, holistic way of storing information as opposed to just words. Is that what you mean? 
No, actually, a hologram is a holistic way of storing an image as opposed to storing it pixel by pixel. Ah. So when you store it pixel by pixel, each little bit of the image is stored in one pixel. When you store it in a hologram, every little bit of the hologram stores the whole image. So you can take a hologram and cut it in half, and you still get the whole image. It's just a bit fuzzier. It just seemed like a much more interesting idea than something like a filing cabinet, which was the normal analogy, mm -hmm. where the memory of each event is stored as a separate file in the filing cabinet. There was somebody named Carl Lashley, you said, who took out bits of rats' brains and found that the rats still remembered things? Yes. Basically, what he showed was that the memory for how to do something isn't stored in any particular part of the brain. It's stored in many different parts of the brain. And in fact, the idea that, for example, an individual brain cell might store a memory doesn't make a lot of sense because your brain cells keep dying. And <laughs> each time a brain cell dies, you don't lose one memory. This notion of memory, this holographic idea, was very much in opposition to conventional symbolic AI. Yes. Which was all the rage in the last century. Yes, you can sort of draw a contrast between two completely different models of intelligence. In the symbolic AI model, the idea is you store a bunch of facts as symbolic expressions, a bit like English, but cleaned up so it's not ambiguous. <laughs> and you also store a bunch of rules that allow you to operate on those facts. And then you can infer things by applying the rules to the known facts to get new known facts. So it's based on logic, how reasoning works. And then they take reasoning as to be the core of intelligence. Hmm. There's a completely different way of doing business, which is much more biological, which is to say, we don't store symbolic expressions. We have great big patterns of activity in the brain. And these great big patterns of activity, which I'll call vectors, these vectors interact with one another. And these are much more like holograms. So you've got these vectors of neural activity. So, for example, large language models that lead to big chatbots are all the rage nowadays. If you ask, how do they represent words or word fragments? What they do is they convert a symbol that says it's this particular word into a big vector of activity that captures lots of information about the word. They'd convert the word cat into a big vector, which is sometimes called an embedding, there's a much better representation of cat than just a symbol. All the similarities of things are conveyed by these embedding vectors, very mm. different from a symbol system. The only property a symbol has is that you can tell whether two symbols are the same or different. I'm thinking of Moravec's paradox, which I understand is the observation by AI and robotics researchers that Reasoning actually requires very little computation, but a lot of sensory motor and perception skills. He wrote in 88, it's comparatively easy to make computers exhibit adult-level performance on intelligence tests or playing checkers, and difficult or impossible to give them the skills of a one-year-old when it comes to perception and mobility. I just wonder, do you think machines can ever think until they can get sensory motor information built into those systems? There's 
two sides to this question, a philosophical side and a practical side. So philosophically, I think, yes, machines could think without any sensory motor experience. But in practice, it's much easier to build an intelligent system if it has sensory input. There's all sorts of things you learn from sensory input. But the big language models that lead to these chatbots, many of them just have language as their input. Mm-hmm. One thing you said at the beginning of this question was that reasoning is easy and perception's hard. I'm paraphrasing. Um, <laughs> that was true when you used symbolic AI, when you try to do everything by having explicit facts and rules to manipulate them. Perception turned out to be much harder than people thought it would be. As soon as you have big neural networks that learn and learn these big vectors, it turns out one kind of reasoning is particularly easy, and it's the kind that people do all the time and is most natural for people, and that's analogical reasoning. Analogical reasoning. One thing is like another. Yeah, we're very good at making analogies. So you went on to study psychology and your career in tech, in which you are responsible for something that amounts to a revolution in AI, was an accidental spinoff of psychology. You went on to get a PhD in AI in the 70s at the oldest AI research center in the UK. That was the University of Edinburgh. You were in a place where everyone thought that what you were doing studying memory as multiple stable states in a system wouldn't work. That, in fact, what you were doing, studying neural networks, was resolutely anti-AI. You weren't a popular guy, I guess. That's right. Back then, neural nets and AI were seen as opposing camps. It wasn't until neural nets became much more successful than symbolic AI that all the symbolic AI people started using the term AI to refer to neural nets so they could get funding. So when explaining the difference for a non-technical person between what a neural network is and why it was revolutionary compared to symbolic AI, a lot of it hinges around what you think a thought is. I recently listened to a podcast where Chomsky repeated his standard view that thought and language are very close. Mm -hmm. Whatever thought is, it's quite similar to language. I think that's complete nonsense. I think Chomsky's misunderstood how we use words. If we were two computers and we had the same model of the world, then it would be very useful, one computer telling the other computer which neurons were active, and that would convey from one computer to another what the first computer was thinking. All we can do is produce sound waves or written words or gestures. That's the main way we convey what we're thinking to other people. Mm-hmm. A string of words isn't what we're thinking. A string of words is a way of conveying what we're thinking. It's the best way we have because we can't directly show them our brain states. I once had a teacher who said, if you can't put it into words, then you don't really understand it. I think there were all sorts of things you can't put into words that your teacher didn't understand. <laughs> So the only place words exist is in sound waves and on pages. The words are not what you operate on in your head to do thinking. It's these big vectors of activity. The Mm -hmm. words are just kind of pointers to these big vectors of activity. They're the way in which we share knowledge. It's not actually a very efficient way to share knowledge, but it's the best we've got. 
So today you're considered a kind of godfather of AI. There's a joke that everyone in the field has no more than six degrees of separation from you. You went on to become a professor at the computer science department at the University of Toronto, which helped turn Toronto into a tech hub. Your former students and postdoctoral fellows include people who are today now leading the field. What's it like being called the godfather of a field that rejected you for the majority of your career? It's pleasing. And now all the big companies are using neural nets. Yes. How do you define thinking? And do you think machines can do it? Is there a point in comparing AI to human intelligence? Well, a long time ago, Alan Turing, I think he got fed up with people telling him machines couldn't possibly think because they weren't human, and defined what's called the Turing test. Back then, you had teletypes, and you would type to the computer a question, Mm -hmm. and it would answer the question. This was a sort of thought experiment. And if you couldn't tell the difference between whether a person was answering the question and whether a computer was answering the question, then Alan Turing said, you better believe the computer's intelligent. I admire Alan Turing, but I never bought that. I don't think it proves anything. Do you buy the Turing test? Um, Basically, yes. There's problems with it, but it's basically correct. I mean, the problem is, suppose someone is just adamantly determined to say machines can't be intelligent. How do you argue with them? Because nothing you present to them satisfies them that machines are intelligent. I don't agree with that either. I could be convinced... If machines had the kind of hologram-like web of experience to draw from, the physical as well as the mental and computational. The neural nets are very holistic. Let me give you an example from ChatGPT. There's probably better examples from some of the big Google models, but ChatGPT is better publicized. So you ask ChatGPT to describe losing one sock in the dryer in the style of the Declaration of Independence. (laughs) It ends up by saying that all socks are endowed with certain rights, certain inalienable rights, by their manufacturer. Now, why did it say manufacturer? Well, it understood enough to know that socks are not created by God, they're created by manufacturers. And so if you're saying something about socks, but in the style of the Declaration of Independence, the equivalent of God is the manufacturer. And understood all that because it has sensible vectors that represent socks and manufacturers and God and creation. That's an example of a kind of holistic understanding, an understanding via analogies that's much more human-like than symbolic AI and that is being exhibited by ChatGPT. And that in your view, is tantamount to thinking. It is thinking. That's intuitive thinking. What neural nets are good at is intuitive thinking. The big chatbots aren't so good at explicit reasoning, but then nor are people. People are pretty bad at explicit reasoning. We don't have identical brains. Our brains run at low power, about 30 watts, right? And they're analog. We're not as good at sharing information as computers are. You can run 10,000 copies of a neural net on 10,000 different computers and they can all share their connection strengths because they all work exactly the same way. And they can share what they learned by sharing their weights, their connection strengths. 
two computers that are sharing a trillion weights, it's an immense bandwidth of information between the two computers. Whereas two people who are just using language have a very limited bottleneck. So computers are telepathic. It's as if computers are telepathic, right. Were you excited when ChatGPT was released? We've been told it, it isn't really a huge advancement. It's just out there for the public. In terms of its abilities, it's not significantly different from a number of other things already developed. But it made a big impact because they did a very good job of engineering it so it was easy to use. Are there potential implementations of AI that concern you? People using AI for autonomous lethal weapons. The problem is that a lot of the funding for developing AI is by governments who would like to replace soldiers with autonomous lethal weapons. So the funding is explicitly for hurting people. That concerns me a lot. That's a pretty clear one. Is there something subtler about potential applications that give you pause? I'm hesitant to make predictions beyond about five years. It's obvious that this technology is going to lead to lots of wonderful new things. As one example, AlphaFold, which predicts the 3D shape of protein molecules from the sequence of bases that define the molecule, that's extremely useful and is going to have a huge effect in medicine. And there's going to be a lot of applications like that. They're going to get much better at predicting the weather, not beyond like 20 days or so, but predicting the weather in like 10 days' time. I think these big AI systems are already getting good at that. But there's just going to be huge numbers of applications. In a sensible society, this would all be good. It's not clear that everything's going to be good in the society we have. What about the singularity? The idea that what it means to be human could be transformed by a breakthrough in artificial intelligence or a merging of human and artificial intelligence into a kind of transcendent form? I think it's quite likely we'll get some kind of symbiosis. AI will make us far more competent. I also think that the stuff that's already happened with neural nets is changing our view of what we are. It's changing people's view from the idea that the essence of a person is a deliberate reasoning machine that can explain why it arrives at conclusions. The essence is much more a huge analogy machine hmm. that's forever making analogies between a gazillion different things to arrive at intuitive conclusions very rapidly. And that seems far more like our real nature than reasoning machines. Have you ever had a flight of fancy of what this ultimately might mean in how we live? That's beyond five years. So <laughs> You're I, right, I, I see. I, I have no you idea. You warned me. <laughs> Jeffrey, thank you very much. Okay. Jeffrey Hinton is an engineering fellow at Google Brain. Coming up, with great computing power comes great responsibility. This is On The Media. This is On The Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. Towards the end of my conversation with Jeff Hinton, he touched on a couple of things that need a little more explaining. One of them was AlphaFold. Which predicts the 3D shape of protein molecules from the sequence of bases that define the molecule. 
an important development because protein misfolding is known to contribute to the pathogenesis of diseases like Alzheimer's. AlphaFold is an AI system developed by DeepMind, a subsidiary of Alphabet. Now, a couple of days ago, DeepMind has announced that its second iteration of the AlphaFold system has, quote-unquote, solved the 50-year-old grand challenge problem of protein folding. There are other labs working on this software, too. This is University of Washington, Seattle biochemist David Baker. We've designed new proteins to break down gluten in your stomach for celiac disease and other proteins to stimulate your immune system to fight cancer. These advances are the beginning of the protein design revolution. Hinton also described his fear of autonomous lethal weapons powered by AI. I followed up on that with Matt DeVoe, an international cybersecurity expert who started his career hacking into the systems for the U.S. Department of Defense back in the 90s. He gave me the beginner's class on autonomous lethality. Where once a target has been designated by a human decision maker, the weapon will have autonomy to kind of operate and get there, right? It'll navigate the terrain properly, make decisions based on how it achieves the impact of that target, for example. There isn't a kid back in Oklahoma running it on a board. It can make a decision and change its path based on its own information. And probably much more quickly than a human drone operator would be able to achieve. Now, Mm -hmm. that doesn't mean that we're going to take humans out of the decision-making equation with regards to what gets targeted. Not yet, anyway. (laughs) Not yet, but in how it achieves the mission and the ability to basically act in a swarm capacity and make decisions amongst themselves adjusting their mission profile based on the swarm intelligence. Yeah, that's when multiple weapons are simultaneously operating and communicating with each other. With each other. um, Making decisions based on each other's behavior. That's drone technology. But how would the next generation of swarming weapons behave? What gets really interesting is if they start to demonstrate an ability to operate in a way that is more humane or cognizant of the human impact than a human decision maker would be able to do, in which case now you start to have some autonomy with regards to the targeting itself. Can you give me an example of that? You know, trying to target this facility, but we're trying to minimize the potential for collateral damage, and the drone is aware enough to know that a bus just pulled up next to the facility Mm -hmm. where there is an autonomy that is built into the weapons that allows them to make a decision or abort a decision or delay a decision based on a situation that even a human being doesn't have the capacity to make that decision because it's changing so rapidly. Right now, we wouldn't allow weapons to autonomously target, but that could happen one day, and it brings up images of Dr. Strangelove and Failsafe. That is going to be a concern. I think we've articulated pretty clearly, at least at the U.S. government level, that humans will remain in the loop as it relates to targeting other humans. It's different if you're targeting drones or you're targeting a communications tower, etc. But we could reach a point in which the drones are more efficient and more humane decision makers based on the AI capabilities and analytics that they're able to achieve. The same way that we might someday decide that we should allow only self-driving cars. You know, humans do a really good job of killing a lot of ourselves in motor vehicles every year. 
there may be a point in time in which the AI is a more sensible and objective decision maker. Obviously, these new AI tools will have an impact on intelligence gathering and collection. And you say that for you, chat GPT was a wow moment. It was for a couple of reasons. You know, one is it interacts with you based on questions and you're able to refine it like the same way that you could refine your conversation with a human being. Tell me more or make a counter argument. But it also does a great job of understanding nuanced concepts. You know, I gave it an, an example. A friend of mine, Bill Kroll, who used to be deputy director of the National Security Agency, had a quote a few years ago where he said, the cybersecurity industry has a thousand points of light but no illumination. Mm-hmm. I asked ChatGPT, what do you think Bill meant when he said that? And it gave an incredible answer. It said... When someone says that the cybersecurity industry has a thousand points of light and no illumination, they are expressing frustration with the fragmented and disorganized nature of the industry. The term a thousand points of light refers to many different players and stakeholders, including government agencies, private companies, and individual security experts. Each of these players brings their own unique perspective and expertise to the field, but the lack of coordination and collaboration among them make it difficult to develop a comprehensive and effective approach to cybersecurity. Holy cow! That is an incredible response, right? And you can tell ChatGPT, I want you to give a ranking or rating about how confident you are in your analysis. I also want you to provide a counterpoint Plus, I want you to provide recommendations as to what we can do about this. So if you go in and ask it, what is the probability that Iran will attack a U.S. bank with a cyber weapon? It gives you a response that flows almost exactly like you would see in an intelligence briefing that might be delivered all the way up to the president's daily briefing. So it's fascinating that it is able to not only query all this knowledge and come up with these great responses, but it can also frame the response from the perspective of the audience expectations. But it has been shown over and over again that chat GPT is fundamentally a people pleaser. Yes. It doesn't care if it's true or not. Yes. It will invent sources in order to give you something that has the exact format you're asking for. So you can't trust anything that chat GPT says. So how can it be helpful in intelligence gathering? Yeah, the intelligence community won't use chat GPT based on chat GPT's existing training data set. It'll use it based on data sets that are proprietary to the intelligence community. So what we're about to see in the next year and in the coming years is these domain-specific versions of chat GPT where I control the training data or I tell it that it doesn't have to be the human pleaser. It doesn't have to be conversational. It should use the same heuristics that it's using to derive these answers. But if you don't have a source, you don't invent it. You can't make judgments that aren't based on a particular source. So it's a very quick shift to move away from that inherent bias to using the capability in a way that's very meaningful. Give me an example. Would it interrogate a prisoner of war? I don't know that it would interrogate a prisoner of war, although you could certainly envision where it might be used to augment a human's questions that they're asking. 
But I think it'll probably get really good at threat assessment, making recommendations for remediating vulnerabilities. I think analysts might also Hmm. use it to help them through their thinking, right? They might come up with an assessment and say, tell me how I'm wrong. And the AI serves as almost the 10th man rule, if you will, where they're by design, taking the counter-argument. So I think there'll be a lot of unique ways in which the technology is used in the intelligence Mm -hmm. community. How imminent is this kind of technology? It's incredibly imminent. The technology clearly exists. We're going to see with version 4.0, a version that is much more constrained with regards to not making things up and is much more current. I mean, one of the existing flaws right now with ChatGPT is the training data ends in 2021. If you now start to have it where there's training data current as of whatever it found in the models this morning, that starts to get very, very interesting and means that this technology can be applied around real-term issues in the next year or two years. So another wow moment you had was a challenge several years ago by DARPA That is the government agency that drives a lot of amazing technology. It gave us the internet, for one thing, and GPS. Tell me about what happened at that DARPA conference. Yeah, so that was fascinating for me. In cybersecurity, we have these contests that we call Capture the Flag contests, and they really are ways for people to compete to demonstrate who's the top hacker, who's the top person at attacking systems. You hack systems and you take control of them, and then you have to defend the flag. You have to make sure that you patch it and you fix it and you prevent other people from taking over that system and booting you off. This is a cyber war This game, is a cyber war game, yeah. So in 2016, they brought the finalists out to DEF CON, which is the largest hacker conference in the world, in Las Vegas, and they had the six finalists compete. That was another aha moment for me, you know, where I felt like I was living in the future, similar to the way I felt when I encountered ChatGPT at the beginning of December. I started my career in 1995. It was my job for the Department of Defense to break into systems and show how they were vulnerable and help system owners patch those systems. And here was being completely replaced by a machine. And the machines were very creative and fast. You know, that's an uncomfortable feeling for somebody in the cybersecurity industry, not because of the displacement, but because of the lack of explainability or the lack of understanding with regards to how resilient the patching is or making sure that the AI doesn't lose control of its objectives and do something that ends up being malicious behavior. So it's definitely a brave new world in that regard. How do we ensure that these weapons are safe to deploy? How do we ensure that they don't commit war crimes? Yeah, I think we'll have clearly defined ethics around the use of artificial intelligence as it relates to things that could impact human lives or human safety. What's going to be disconcerting is when we encounter adversaries that don't have the same ethics. And do we end up having to unleash some sort of autonomy in our weapons because our adversaries have launched autonomous weapons against us? Put in a position of having to violate some of our principles because it's the only way to appropriately defend ourselves. If we dig a little deeper, though, there are some other core risks. These technologies all run on systems that are vulnerable. So we have an underlying responsibility to make sure that the infrastructure is robust and is secure. You also need to make sure where the training data has an open collection model 
ChatGPT draws intelligence from the internet itself, that you are aware of adversaries that might try and pollute that environment. What if I decide that putting blog posts up, writing websites, taking out advertisements, going on Twitter to pursue a particular narrative that will influence the decision-making of a particular AI. And then the third area is going to be around the robustness of the algorithms and making sure that we have removed bias. I think that will drive, in the Department of Defense, a requirement for what we call explainable AI. The AI has to describe to us in understandable terms how it arrived at that decision. The debate over the drones was that Americans wouldn't be killed if we used them. Critics say, we've overused them because the cost to us is so low. We've already been able to destroy the world many times over for 70 years. But the ability to be more surgical in our destruction and even to hand off our own autonomy to machines that may well be smarter than we are is a terrifying prospect. It is, right? We need to figure out what levels of agency we want to retain. As it relates to warfighting, we said, well, we want to maintain the decision-making as it relates to other human beings. But what if, over and over again, AI makes better decisions, safer decisions than human beings? Do we abdicate that responsibility? Do I lose the agency of being able to interpret what is misinformation with my own brain? Or do I abdicate it to an AI system that does it for me? So that is definitely going to be one of the fundamental questions that we face over the next decade. Where do we retain agency? And where do we decide that the machines can do it better? You seem to be suggesting that it may turn out that humans are far more dangerous. In some domains, the humans might be more dangerous. I'm thinking of the Cuban Missile Crisis and how the tape suggests that John Kennedy was pretty much alone in wanting to make that deal to take American missiles out of Turkey so that Khrushchev would take them out of Cuba. I'm just wondering if there had been a, an advanced chatbot advisor in the room, whether he would have stood with Kennedy or not. Yeah, it makes you definitely consider what does the training data look like for a decision like that. I don't want to think that I'm a fan of abdicating control to the machines. I'm certainly not. We have to figure out which are fundamentally human decisions and which are the ones that can be automated or augmented. It depends what you think of human nature, right? I mean, if there is a machine that is developed to help us fight the best war, is there a possibility that that machine may say, best not go to war? As long as we get it to understand our objectives and our constraints, you know, you could sit and say, would the world be a better place right now if Russia were run by some sort of autonomous AI? Possibly, but, you know, if the AI has been programmed with the same biases, the same tendencies, the same ambitions, it might be more efficient than Putin mm -hmm. in perpetrating these atrocities. Matt, thank you very much. Yes, of course. It was uh, my pleasure. I enjoyed the conversation. Matt DeVoe is the CEO and co-founder of the global strategic advisory firm UDA LLC. And that's what we got on AI this week. 
On the Media is produced by Micah Lowinger, Eloise Blondio, Molly Schwartz, Rebecca Clark Callender, Candice Wong, and Suzanne Gaber, with help from Tammy George. Our technical director is Jennifer Munson. Our engineers this week for Andrew Nerviano and Sham Sundra. Katya Rogers is our executive producer. On the Media is a production of WNYC Studios. I'm Brooke Gladstone.